She's just not somebody you can be friends with. You can go on a hike with her through the Hollywood Hills and she'll ask you about your family. She'll be very nice, but you never actually get to know this person. You can't touch her. You can't get through the glass. Welcome to this, today's episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold with Vanessa Gregoriadis, who's been on the podcast before. She's got this podcast called Infamous uh, about cults and cult leaders and people who have obviously become famous through um, nefarious means, bad things they've they've done and they've become infamous. Um, and she has a lot of inside information about... Meghan Markle, because she wrote this article for Vanity Fair, which is all uh, very illustrious and, and a very, you know, long form essay about the whole Markle family breakdown or the family history breakdown. So she's got loads of inside information about the sort of what she calls the Kardashianified royal fairy tale. So we're going to go into a lot of that. And I suppose the reason that people do have such a problem with her, because she's not all bad, no one is i mean i suppose vicious dictators are um but there's just something that a lot of people have a problem with around her and i think vanessa is very good at putting her finger on exactly what that is uh, it might be that you're a huge markle fan and that you hate this episode i hope that's not the case but um you know plurality of opinion that's what we need uh, and and don't think for a second that uh criticizing megan and harry means that uh, I or Vanessa are on the side of the royal family. I think it's possible to uh, critically analyse both sides for their misdemeanours. Anyway, big episodes. I always say that, don't I? There's loads of big episodes coming out. Loads of big episodes. Don't worry about what they are. They're coming out. You're going to enjoy them. This is a great episode as well. Check out Infamous, by the way. Find out you know, all of Vanessa Gregoriadis' writing. Really, really good. Go check that stuff out. But now, you're on the edge of the Meghan Markle family breakdown with Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa Gregoriadis, you were on this podcast before. You're back. How are you so doing? So nice to see you. Yes, uh, I'm doing very well. So you wrote this article for Vanity Fair, and it's really funny because I feel, and it's just my opinion, that there's been a rewriting of history. So that's why your article sort of stands out as this important historic artifact now, I think. <laughs> I'll just say, because we're expected to remember that Meghan was hated from the start, but uh, it's often because she's a woman or because she is biracial or whatever else, but you're, uh, you were ahead of the curve, I think. And in that article, uh, you, you're stating at the time that she she's just become the darling of the British press. This was 2018 and a royal Cinderella story. So we forget, don't we, that at the beginning, she was very popular. Yeah, I mean, look, far be it for me to defend the British tabloids, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> we all we all know that a lot of Horrible. gross stuff happens, and, and I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, it's all on the up and up. But the fact is, is that when Meghan first, uh, you know, hooked up with Harry, there wasn't this, like, outpouring of vitriolic anger and racism from the press towards her. There was more a curiosity, like, who is this? She's from Suits. Wow, how crazy. Maybe he'll go with her. 
were, you know, it, it behooved the tabloids to also play this up as a romance, right? So I do think that she can point to a few different things that were said that were really unkind and one or two things that were indeed racist. But in general, there was a sea of very, you know, sort of basic problem um, that you would see of any girlfriend of his. And the press had sort of left that thing of like, oh, he wore the Nazi costume and oh, you know, he drinks all the time. That was sort of over. Yeah. And so, I mean, they speak of this difficulty from the start. And I think you're spot on. I mean, I don't know. It's a really difficult conversation to have about sort of race and and misogyny and all these different kinds of things, because you're always part of me wants to say you're always going to get that in a population of like, you know, hundreds of millions of people in a, in a country or, or in this country, 70 or 80 million people. There are always going to be bad people. There are going to be bad actors. And as you say, the tabloid press here was just awful. But then also, I don't want to be flippant and just like, well, so it doesn't matter. I guess there was, I mean, there was some sort of race element stuff from the start, was was there? I think there was a bit of racism at, you know, the, the forefront of it. But indeed, you know, the fact that she has a black mother was not a large part of her story in the British press. Like, they were much more interested in suits and who does she hang out with and what exactly is going on at Soho House with, you know, this one and that one, because that's sort of the Toronto scene the sort of expat British scene is how she had like risen to the level of even meeting somebody like this, right? So that was where people, you know, where where the press was looking. Do, do you remember that? Or did you ever come across that Danny Baker story, the journalist who lost his job? Uh, he, he was, he's quite well known in England and he put up a picture of the royal family holding a monkey and um oh, okay yeah. that's but, yes but wait that's... no but wait but wait because oh oh, oh that sounds bad <laughs> but are you going to tell me it's it wasn't that, that bad <laughs> yeah i think it wasn't that bad because i think he's put up stuff before of the royal family being monkeys he just finds uh, that funny and it was back okay. at a time i think this was a huge change like he, in england anyway it marked this change where a lot of people were embarrassed to find they didn't realize that megan was biracial and I'm, I definitely speak for myself because I had no idea. I don't follow the royals in general. And I saw this woman. I grew up in a you know a Jewish upbringing. A lot of Jewish people, some are sort of Russian and very white like me, but a lot of sort of darker skinned and stuff. She could have just been one, one of us. Um, I had no idea. And he says he had no idea. And it was weird for him to suddenly put out like a racist thing after like 50 years of not putting out racist things. But he lost his job. So that was like a turning point for everyone. It was like, oh, no, okay. We've got to be careful now if we do criticize. Not that we were criticizing that much back then. Like, and you write in your article as well. Um, her public. This was. I, I love that it's like this time machine because this was 2018. And so you write. Her public performance has been flawless. So what's changed in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, just to just to put a bow on that, I would just say that, like, you know, the 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 royal family is are they are the original racists, and they used to like sure. powder their faces to make them whiter. So you know, of course, there is some racism there. But uh, yes, when I wrote this article, I you know would say that you know a couple of things happened. The first one was that, um, like, the, you know. A, a women's magazine that normally would write about all of the stuff that I write about um, sort of refused to even promote the article. And when I talked to the editor, I said, why aren't you picking this up? There's a ton of news in here. She said, well, we're not going to say anything negative about Megan. And your article really strikes us as something that like you're totally off. You're totally wrong about this. You're completely off the on uh, off the reservation. And I and I was like, 
okay, mark my words. Like, I don't wow. have it in for Megan for no reason. Like, <laughs> I just happened to have gone and talked to 20 people who knew her. And this is, like, what I came away with, which is basically, like, you know, she's a grasping, striving, like, woman. And one of the... um Things that somebody said to me that always stuck in my mind was that, uh, you know, they said, like, the, the whole cast of Suits, like, or not the whole cast of Suits, but a large number of the people in Suits, you know, sort of didn't, like, jive with her. And somebody said, like, she's just not somebody you can be friends with. You know, like she'll you can go on a hike with her through the Hollywood Hills and she'll ask you about your family. She'll be very nice. But you never actually get to know this person like you can't touch her. You can't get through the glass, you know. And the other thing that somebody said to me about that scene of people up in um, Toronto at Soho House, which is, of course, you know, Suits was was filmed in Toronto and, you know, hanging out with all these Brits up there that also stuck in my mind was like, these women have everything and they want everything. And it's basically this idea that, you know, I am I am just for women's rights and for the underclass is like a later sort of, you know, gloss on what was really a life that was ambitious and directed towards ambition. And and, you know, look, I think I think it's all just really silly the way that she's, you know, tried She's essentially devoted herself to rehabbing or changing her image, which really wasn't that bad to begin with. It's like she wants to be sainted. She needs to be Oprah. It's like everybody already loved you. Just like leave it. It's fine the way it is. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, there's just – the whole world is now sort of seeing the strangeness of this like singular vision that she has for her life and for Harry. Um, I just happened to have seen it earlier because I had actually done like hard reporting. You know, I worked in L.A. for a long time. Um I just – it was weird. It was like I just – everybody I asked, I said, do you know Meghan Markle? Everybody knew her. Like she was out and about. Remember, she had that husband originally, you know, and and they were, you know, they were out making moves on the scene, like going to dinner with everybody, networking constantly. She was an extremely known quantity in that L.A. Hollywood sort of, you know – like, it's not like I know a ton of – I mean, I don't know Brad Pitt, right? Like, I don't know a ton of people who are high-level Hollywood people, but in the sort of, like, you know, TV actors, showrunners, people who, you know, you know, care about the hot restaurant but not the one that costs $500 to go to dinner, just the one that has really good ethnic food. And, you know, she was – she was very, very known, and that was a scene that I was, you know, somewhat uh, able to – wasn't like infiltrating. It was like – I was like <laughs> sort of knew these people, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Like I think a lot of people wonder why uh, – they say, why are you obsessed with Meghan Markle? And, and part of the reason is because you put out a video on YouTube, it gets hundreds of thousands of views because everybody's a bit obsessed. And I, I wonder what you think of this – theory i i feel like she's she's now become sort of the face of a 
of a, maybe a conflict between like two tribes of people and you've got sort of uh i think it's okay to be really ambitious i think we actually venerate ambitious people particularly in the states more than the uk sometimes you know you can be ambitious and go for that american dream and go, which i like i like that you can be honest and go for it and you can also be like a really worthy person who does lots of charity and wants to help others and all of those things and i think when you try and combine the two as we've seen over the years with a lot of hollywood for example a lot of the oscars a lot of these people uh it becomes a little bit insidious and it becomes you know disingenuous we don't really believe the person anymore and it sort of over the years with megan it started to seep out that a few of us despite everyone loving her apparently a few of us were like well hang on it doesn't really fit that she's this person who sort of she went to apparently you know uh, had to get scholarships to go to school and grew up in completely working class and she just wants to help everyone and be this big feminist and stuff it's just so much so much of her story doesn't fit together does it yeah i mean i think the thing is um you know, the way I see Megan is that she, uh, you know, she came from this very sort of middle class uh, Hollywood family, right, where uh, her dad was a lighting designer. You know, her mom was like super into yoga. Um, the You know, we'll get to her sister eventually, right, her half sister. <laughs> um, but she you know sort of grew up on the on the edges of hollywood i guess you would say or not not really the edges but you know these were not the rich and famous her parents these were just the regular working stiffs in hollywood and you know i always thought it was incredible that she she went to like a you know a nice catholic school and then after school she would sometimes go to the set of married with children to hang out with her dad you know so that's where he was like doing lighting which is just like quite a juxtaposition in a in a really strange way um but she you know, seems to, from a young age, have had real ambitions to be famous, to be an actress, to be like sort of of the higher class than what her upbringing was. So that's like where she was pointed to. I mean, her family is fascinating. And her relationship with her father, I think, is fascinating. Because what people said to me is like, they did have a good loving relationship. But there's something about him that's also odd. There's something about him that is hard to reach and behind glass as well. And so What's happened with her dad is just a really sad story in a way, I think, which is that maybe she, you know, I would imagine was a little embarrassed of him or didn't really know how am I going to play, you know, my mom who just like went to Humboldt and hung out for a few years. I mean, her when you start looking into her family history, it doesn't seem like one of a princess, right? So... There may have been some anxiety around that. Maybe there were even questions around money around that. What are what is my family going to do when they realize like I have the crown jewels? You know, how is that going to work? Um how can I introduce these people to, you know, royalty and all the other lords and ladies that I now hang out with, you know, putting myself in her mind, which is whatever, obviously my imagination, I can imagine that she was nervous about a lot of this stuff. And then, you know, 
the story that I've been told from my reporting is that, you know, there was a female journalist from one of the tabloids who basically sort of moved down to Mexico to be near her dad and, you know, really befriended him and essentially, uh, you know, played the game that journalists play, which is like, let me help you, but also let me get uh, side, you know, let me get a story in the newspaper. Let me help you collect your thoughts about all this and we'll get stories in the newspaper. And, um, you know, there was some emotional bond that was formed between that female reporter and her dad. Um, and that, that that got in the way of some of the relationship between him and Megan. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I think some of what you're what you what you're saying and how you describe them, you know, on the well, I spoke the edges or the cusps of Hollywood all the time and working in Hollywood, it sounds like there's that real aspiration. Uh and so so Megan might have been right to be a bit wary of of her family. And she, and she was proven right. To be fair to her, I criticize her a lot. I can see why she was guarded about I mean, how how does she introduce a family like that 
who who are that aspirational and and as you point out in your article uh just see it as celebrities and climbing a ladder how do you introduce them to you know your this new family this new life you've carved out for yourself well see i don't know if they were so striving i think the way that i've been told it is that she was the striving one and they were just sort of hollywood weirdos Like they were just sort of like, all right, you know what I mean? Like not really, you know, her mom is supposed to be very calm and like a nice presence. And her dad was like already sort of like down in Mexico, right? Like doing whatever, living on a probably a pensioner salary. And like, you know, there it was more just that they were like not – they didn't fit a normal mold and probably you never knew what really was going to come out of their mouths. But I do think that, you know, had she, you know, figured out a way to bring them to Britain to meet everybody in a controlled setting for a dinner something like that. And by everybody, I mean her parents. I do not actually mean her sister. You know, uh, it, it would have, you know, she didn't have to bring all the people on the outskirts of the family and, you know, this cousin and that cousin, just her parents and set it up that way early on, um, you know, for a weekend, a shooting weekend or whatever. Uh, all of this could have sort of been avoided, you know, and they would have put out the word to the rest of the family, like, Megan is talking to us, but it's not going to be the extended family at the wedding um, or something along those lines. Now, all of those people would eventually have told their stories. There's no way that they wouldn't have. But the stuff with the parents is really so strange and her dad is so strange that I think she could have avoided some of it. And what what I can see from his point of view as well, I mean, imagine paying to send your daughter to a, you know, th- through college and then she comes out and starts saying that, you know, it was all paid for by scholarships and things and her family to sort of, again, it's that, that sort of, it seems like she's trying as hard as she can to be this uh, sort of, well, Cinderella story and it doesn't seem to be true. Right. Well, I think the thing is, is that her, you know, we'd have to actually see the receipts to know exactly what happened. I mean, my recollection, which could just, I think it might be that there is a, uh, you know, there were some loans and there were some payments and there was this and that. Um, The the fact is, is that she wanted to be seen as like this independent woman, you know, and what we know now about her is that she has like sort of a strange relationship to objective reality. Like she has this like sort of warped reality and then she just like marshals evidence underneath it to support a thesis that may not be the case. And she very much seems to think that everybody's too dumb to figure out what she's doing. And I think that that's where her fatal flaw lies, which is like, Everybody knows that you got in trouble for saying you never Googled, like, Prince Harry, right, on the Oprah interview. And then you come out with your Netflix documentary, and the first thing you do is try to create some supporting evidence in the first, like, five minutes of that documentary to show that you were right about that. And somehow we're all supposed to not know that this is part of like a PR crisis comms strategy. Um, 
which is quite like strange, you know, like even Diana talked to the press, like everybody knows that Diana was heavily involved in her image management. Um, She didn't do a great job with it, but like, you know, there's and she thinks she has this ace in the hole, which is Harry will just say over and over, well, my mother, right? Like he'll just say, well, my mother was killed by these people, you know? So thereby, they are unmentionables, untouchables. They are evil. And um, any manipulation that we have to do is completely justified because we are fighting this enormous, you know, braying, like, monster, um, which is only, like, a monster in her – like, it's, it, it is a monster in his mind, right? Because it's real for him. Like, the psychology – I mean, it must be so – like so hard for him, but it's not a monster in her mind because she is the one who would go out to like drinks with Piers Morgan. Like yeah. she was desperate for the press to be like interested in her, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, there was this bit that I remember from uh, Prince Harry's book Spare where he, I hate it. It was one of the worst parts really because I, I, I'm not a big fan of Prince Harry either or, or any of the, the royals I, I mean i think the whole royal thing is i i, I well that's a whole other topic about whether the royals <laughs> should be there or not yeah. um and, and i don't mind that they that they are there i just think if you grow up in those under those conditions it's difficult to then be sort of a, a, a well-rounded individual but um there's a scene where he really uh talks with disdain about the spice girls because he happened to be sort of sharing a platform with them at one point when he was younger and he talks about how they were sort of enjoying the limelight and the press and the attention and stuff and i thought it was so tone deaf because these are you know five working class women who have worked their way up and they rely on the press it's a symbiotic relationship that they have and they're selling what they have which is their voices and their dancing and all these things that they can do and their their whole ethos and he didn't have to do that however after all the criticism that he's dished out at people like the Spice Girls or just at the press in general. He's, as South Park pointed out, he's become a journalist himself and dished out more secrets about the royal family than any any other journalist could have dreamed of doing. And he did it for the same reason they did it, for money. But I think it's even worse because he didn't need anywhere near as... These people, I, I'm not a huge fan of the paparazzi, but often they need the money to sort of, you know, put bread on the table. Uh, with Harry, he didn't need, you know, hundreds it's of millions a, it's, of Absolutely, like, bananas. I mean, what has happened is so bananas. And I wish I had seen this coming because, quite honestly, when I, you know, I'm not that well-sourced in Britain. I didn't know you yet. But, like, you know, when I (laughs) – after I did this this story, um, you know, I had heard Tina Brown was working on a book. But I was like, my Lord, this is a book because I know that this is going to go someplace real strange, you know. And um, I mean, I still get emails from lots of British, you know, biographers and tabloid writers. And they're always like, I saw this story. Who is this person, this unnamed person in your story? And I'm like, I'm not giving you my sources. But um, there is like – just a, a fascinating story of like Anglo-American relations, upper class, lower class, upstairs, downstairs, like, you know, what what the I mean, it's just it has everything. Racism, gender, you know, the need for money when these people have so much I mean, they could go back to England and live in, you know, 
the biggest mansions that anybody ever saw. I mean, I guess they got Frogmore Cottage sort of taken away, but like, you know, they could have everything they want, right? If they were there, they obviously don't want that. And you know, to that, I, I give them credit. If you really don't want it, good for you for just saying, like, I'm out of here, you know, making my sure. I'm going to make my own life with my own kids, my own wife. Like, I think that's yeah. really cool. But um, the hypocrisy of like, I hate the press so much, but I should be able to sell my products where I speak to you directly and put out my warped vision of reality, and you should just buy it, even though we have, like, many reports of Megan assistance being fired. This person, she's a problem with this person. She's a problem with that person. There's, like, endless things that happened while they were in Britain that are confirmed that are not about, like you know, victimhood, right? And so I don't get, like, how... I, I, the only explanation I can have, I can get is, is that, I mean, in my... The only explanation that, like, makes sense to me is the idea that they truly are part of an overclass now. Like, they are at dinner with Oprah and Bezos and, you know, I don't know about Elon Musk, but, like, the people in the world who you know for 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 whom like reality doesn't really matter and nobody would ever say anything negative towards you and they're sort of playing to that audience right yeah they just and, feel they could have got there without the virtue stuff. People like excesses when people are honest about it. People like the Kardashians, don't they? You know, that just the mad excess uh, yeah. ambition, drive. Yeah. Fantastic. Good for you. It's, you know, why? It's that they didn't do that. And then there's a lot of stuff as well. I always think this about, I mean, there's a difficulty just with celebrity anyway, uh, in terms of, um, for example, children's books. Um, I know that, like, in the industry of children's writing, people are really annoyed at celebrities because celebrities keep coming and writing children's books. Uh, and it's like stealing the work from the children's book writers because if you've got a big name and you're a celebrity, your book's the one that's going to sell right, a lot course, more. Yeah. Um, but that's true across so many genres. When you're a celebrity, you can. And I think that's okay because you, you've got to live how you've got to live. But there's just zero awareness of them doing that. And I'm annoyed as a podcaster because Megan made a podcast and they had this big deal. It took them like a year to put one episode out. They're, they're just awful they were made, they're so bad and she got paid more from that than i'll get from like years of putting out three episodes a week now all fine but i just don't want to hear that she's a victim and that he's a victim and that they're all victims and i think right, that's but the difficulty. They, but it also could be like a a really just um you know incredible strategy that they have because the sure. fact is if they're not going to tell us secrets about the royal family you know, which, of course, they're going to have to say they're the worst, right? They're never going to say, like, okay, let me get into the nuance here. Um, <laughs> that's what's keeping attention on them. Like, if they did just go make their, you know, documentary about Africa or whatever, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking about them. That's so true. So this is what, like, I, I think that she's extremely canny and – you know, in her heart of hearts, does she know 
does she know exactly what she's doing? I don't know. I mean, after I wrote the story in Vanity Fair, uh, five friends of hers were suddenly authorized to speak to People Magazine. And a cover in People Magazine came out about how amazing she is. And, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Vanity Fair was wrong, but it was a very, very clear rebuttal piece, right? And this is just my opinion, but there's nobody who can authorize those people to speak except for her. Yeah, but I guess that there's, there's a difference between, and this is what we don't, we're speculating about, there's a difference between her um, knowing that she's actually, you know, a nefarious Present, presence trying to do bad things uh, and her going on the defensive and just being like, well, hang on, they've said that I've, you know, I'm bad, but I know these friends will speak nicely about me. And I'd actually prefer it if she were the just, you know, uh, malevolent one, if she knew like, ha ha ha, I'm an evil narcissist and I'm doing this for my own gains. I'm like, you know what? Fine. Good on you. That, like you right. say, it's a strategy. But right. if, it's, if she doesn't realize that's what's frustrating. Right, right, right. Yeah, she's, she's, uh, I, I think you would have to be with her to know, but I do know that I know somebody who interviewed her, um, mm. who sell remaining nameless because I tried to get her to come on my podcast, Infamous. I was like, you should come on my podcast and talk about Meghan Markle. And sure. she said, I don't want to come because I've had a million tabloids calling me, you know, people coming after me on the Internet who are like stands of Megan. Like, I just don't want to deal with this. But she had spent a day with Megan in California. And her takeaway was this person just is not on the level. Like, this person is just not on the level. Like, I, I, I don't want to be here. You know, what, what is what is it, though? What is it they don't like about her? It's that she's not real. It's like for all of her, like, you know, whatever videos of her, like dancing on the beach with her shoes off and like, you know, scarves going around her. Like, she's just not real. She just doesn't know how to relate to human beings. Are we talking? You've spent a lot of time with sort of narcissists and psychopaths, obviously for infamous as well. We've talked about Nixium before. Right. Is is that the, the sort of world we're talking about, the world of narcissists? I mean, I don't, I don't think she's a psychopath. I mean, I have no, I don't think she's like deviant in some way like that. I think, you know, and again, this is just my opinion and my hunch for talking to people in her family. Um, you know, and I did talk to her sister a lot and, my hunch is that there's just something a little off about all of them. Yeah. You know? What's the deal with her sister then? What's the deal with Samantha Markle? Because she's suing her, isn't she? She's suing her now. Um, I can't imagine she's going to win any sort of suit um, saying that, you know, she did know her half-sister, Megan, and Megan is – you know, lying when she says she didn't know her. Um, I mean, I felt from the conversations I had with Samantha that she didn't know her very well. She certainly knew her, you know, but she, you know, was leaving the house, right? There's a quite a big age difference. Um, and 
this felt to me like a relationship that had broken apart a long time ago, probably when Megan had started having success, right? Um, the funny thing about Samantha is, is like she's quite articulate and funny and interesting to talk to. Um, and she probably has some good insights and real information, but she can't help herself from calling her like princess pushy and striking out. And, you know, mm, you feel the feeling, right. I mean, I don't think that you can overestimate the amount of hurt that was felt throughout that entire family. Like any third cousin was like, I should have been at this wedding. <laughs> like, why is every other, third cousin of Harry's there? Why am I not there? You know, and and you can make an argument for that, which is yeah. like, why? I mean, it is a bit you know, I, I also heard that there were a lot of people at the wedding who were sort of looking at each other, like the Americans who were invited and going, can you believe we were invited to this wedding? Like, we're not really friends with these people, you know, like the, she had to create this whole like cast right to to show that she had people there for her when she could have just had her actual family right and and i just think that's where it it's like a little bit of honey and a carrot would have gone really far she didn't have to invite mm -hmm. every third cousin but i well, bet given, she could have controlled the situation a little bit better given how harry's broken away from his own family it is all a bit gross um a bit you know, because he's from the sort of posh, rich family, it's like, okay, well, they'll host it because they're the royal family. But we're all people. We're all going to, you know, ashes to ashes or whatever. So we're just people wandering around. What, why should it be his family well, and his Well, I mean, it was pretty exciting that it was his family. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't going to be like, you know, some place in like Inland Empire. Like, uh, like well, if you they want to break away. Right. Yeah, but they didn't yet. They didn't yet. Um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I think none of that had really had really happened at that point. And um, I don't think they should be faulted. And again, like, I think a lot of stuff happened where her dad and her sister were way at fault. Like, I don't want to give the impression that things did not go like massively, massively haywire because they did. Um, but. I, I do feel like it's curious that somebody who is so intense about managing her own image wasn't able to manage this family complexity, you know, without it breaking out into full view in a, a like, just shocking, right? Like an absolutely shocking dumpster fire, you know? Yeah. I like the quote, um, uh, charity starts in the home, because I, I just... I've just had too many experiences, I think, li like living with people when I was younger and uh, who have always just been on about like saving the rainforest or whatever it might be. And then they don't do the dishes in the house or something. They don't do their their part. And I think it's, you know, to be like running around the world on these extravagant holidays talking about all the charity that she's doing and the things she's doing for feminism and stuff, but not making an effort to like invite her own family to the wedding, not making an effort to go along with some of the, I mean, as stupid as they are, they're the, you know, the royals, some of the traditions are 
are a bit outdated and stuff. Um, but we've all got in-laws and, you know, we just sort of shut up around them and do some of what they want to do. And that's, right. I mean, that's the problem here is that, you know, it's like she invites the cousin and they, you know, steal the first communion, you know, cup oh. of the, of, you know, I mean, like, they're just like, who knows what is going to happen? You know, and certainly yeah. they're going to sell a bunch of stories. I mean, that much is clear. Right. Yeah. So, True. I mean, I get that it was not. She was knowledgeable that something weird was going to happen if she didn't control it. But she didn't do a good job in the way that she tried to manage the situation. I just, you know, I, I, I just don't. The thing that I am still so surprised about is just like, just be real, honey. Like, just be real. That's what people actually like. Like, you can still do all this weird, glossy, like Netflixy stuff. But like. If you're making a podcast, people actually want to hear from, like, a human being, not, like, an android. Like, yeah. she sounds like a robot, you know? Yeah. And how much yeah. longer can we watch this show? I mean, they're really starting to repeat themselves now. Yeah. So yeah, When I was five years old, I wrote to a commercial to, you know, tell right. them what a feminist I was. And I helped everyone. And me and Serena Williams are victims. And it's like, Serena yeah. Williams has actually done something in her life. She's pretty cool. You right. Know? Uh, yeah. That really that that episode really I, I couldn't listen to the podcast after that. Yeah, some of the you give us some great insights in that article, um, and again you were ahead of the curve because nobody was printing uh, criticism of of her or him at that time. But really interesting insights into her her life, and I, you can see why she might have had some issues with authenticity. Because I do think when you grow up around that Hollywood side, you know you're always sort of looking in, and then you get this idea of like performed authenticity. You're trying too hard. I see it, you know, my, my half-sister, she's grown up uh, with the family. They're always watching, like, X Factor and The Voice and all these things on TV. And I think it's hard, it must be hard for her sometimes to look at that and then sort of think, am I supposed to be like that? Because that's what you grew up watching. And, and Megan was really, you know, watching all this acting stuff. And then there's some stuff you wrote about, like, you know, if she had a tantrum when she was a baby and threw peas on the floor, her dad would sort of join in uh, and throw peas on the floor. So she was always around this sort of performative... Like what, there was, there was a blurred line between what was real and what was performed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she, you know, I mean, look, she was a young actress in Hollywood, right? So she was like sort of in that scene where nobody's actually telling the truth. Everybody's sort of just, you know, trying to make it however they can. So for me, you know. I really wonder, like, what is actually going through her mind? I really am. I am very curious. Mm. Did you watch the South, the South Park episode? No. Oh, oh God. Well, they they imply there's a bit at the end where uh, the the character that's supposed to be Harry sort of opens her head up mm -hmm. and sort of says something like, "Is anyone in there?" And it like echoes. Um, and so they see. I they think assume, she's quite smart, yeah. though. I mean, if you look at her yeah. writing, also she's a very good writer. Um, sure. Even when it's like you know the the letter she sent to her dad that she you know knew was going to be released or whatever it's actually a very good good letter i mean flowery I have, yeah, it's a bit flowery like i i mean i had a i got a an incredible anecdote where she had gone to like glamour or l one of these women's magazines and she met this woman that i know who i actually made a podcast with justine Harmon, who uh the two of us made a podcast about the fall of victoria's secret called fallen angel and so she <laughs> she went you know 
it's sort of like a meet and greet, which is what like B-level actresses would do with women's magazine editors. And she came into the office. She met with Justine. Justine, you know, in the course of conversation, mentioned she was about to get married. And she said to Justine, well, I do calligraphy. Like, can I do the calligraphy for your wedding? Megan was like, sometimes I do calligraphy on the side. Like, I do it for people's weddings sometimes. I'm really, it's like a thing I know how to do, and I'm really good at it, and I want to do it for you. And so Justine, like, afterwards was, like, asking her friend, like, can I actually ask, like, Megan Markle to do the calligraphy for my wedding? And... um and she didn't ask her. And then she ended up, like, interviewing her again or something. And the first thing – well, not the first thing, but, like, Meghan Markle says to her, why, do you, why did you never call me to do the calligraphy for your wedding? And she was just like, what is happening? <laughs> like, um, I'm going to have to look that up just to make sure I didn't, like, completely misspeak. But basically, that's the kind of, like – I feel like that's sort of where she's at, where she's, like, one of these people where she – like gives really elaborate, awesome presents, like where you're like, oh no, do I have to like give you back a present? Because I don't even know what to get, and I I wouldn't even want to get this present. It's very nice of you, but this is not like my love language, right? <laughs> never, never trust people who give outlandish presents. Because I actually think that because I think that is. I mean, we, look, you and I know from doing looking into cults and stuff. There's love bombing. It's a right. huge sort of manipulative thing that people do. It happens yeah. in relationships when, like, a, you can imagine a guy or or a girl giving like loads of presents, and then you sort of expect things back. And from my own experience, and I, I, I sort of well, I know my fiance is listening to this, so I'm sort of uh, concerned that I'll stop getting presents now. But when you get them <laughs> presents that are too much that it offer it, it never feels good right your first thought is like oh how am i gonna i feel i feel humiliated almost. I, and, and how am i gonna get them back how can i how can i live nicely enough i, I didn't want to see that friend again anyway really now i've got to like be friends with them for a few more years <laughs> <It's so weird. laughs> maybe that's yeah. a nice thing that she offered to do the calligraphy it is, is that- quite nice i mean it is quite nice that's the thing you know, she's lovely in person. Everybody really likes her, you know, but you don't hear about her the things you hear about Kim Kardashian, right? Which is like, everybody says, oh my God, I met Kim Kardashian and she's great, right? Like she's so sweet. She's so polite. She's not like crass. Like she's seems sort of smart and she's interested in you and there's feels a, like a realness there, you know? And that's not what you, you hear about her. You know, another another line in your article that that had me an, annoyed a bit at Megan um, was this this thing about how she was like the president of every club at school and she was this huge overachiever. But now she speaks about it and sort of reframes it as not because I wanted to. It was the overachiever mask I wore, you know, as a as a way of battling feeling displaced. And again, it's that sort of line. And again, we cover this a lot in cults and things, but it's that line between sort of victim and and uh, and well, what's the opposite of victim? I don't want to say predator. Her- hero. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Victim oh, and hero. Or, yeah. Or, I guess it's that it's that line. It's like 
I can imagine somebody at school now going around being like in charge of everything, almost bullying other people, like just being the popular kids and stuff like that. And you get to have that and it's like you get your cake and eat it because then 20 years later, you can reframe it as like, but it's this victim story because I was so displaced by my... And it's like, we know that. We know that about, you know, even in Back to the Future, like Biff, the bully in it, you know, he must have had a bad upbringing and it's that old traditional cliche of like, ah, their parents were the real bullies and that's why they were like that at school. It doesn't excuse you being like this, you know, you can't just, I don't know, I've lost my train of thought here, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is like, there's a lot of pop psychology that she does. And it's, look, I think she, you know, I think, I think she felt somewhat, uh, you know, at, at loose ends growing up, you know, whatever her personality of her father is, her mother wasn't around that much, you know, having a black mother, probably at that time, was a little weird, right? Like having an interracial family um, wasn't like, she didn't feel like she looked like everybody else when she went around. She didn't have a perfect childhood. Like I think that that much is very clear and very true. Like she was sort of at loose ends and, and although her father did definitely care for her, like, and took care of her, like, there was, you know, this was a man who was working full time, right, and doing what he could, had some other kids, like, you know, it just, it wasn't like a picket fence lifestyle where she came home from school and her mom made her peanut butter and jelly, you know, I'm sure Mm. there were a lot of TV dinners, like, in her life as a kid. But, you know, a lot of people have like hard childhoods. It's just I don't know. I mean, there's like a gratitude piece that's missing with her, like a a gratitude gene that I yeah. think I don't discern that much, at least in what she puts out like publicly, you know. Um, yeah. And now they need money. Like, that's the thing. I'm not clear on what the finances are. Are you? Like, I don't know what what they have, what they don't have. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. They have some money anyway. I mean, I guess both of them. I mean, from her acting and stuff. And he got some money. He's just like inherited. inherited. So I don't know the full ins and outs of it. But I know he's got a few million or something. But mm-hmm. for someone of that kind of right, lifestyle, that lifestyle it, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't enough. So, but now, I think Netflix was $100 million. And the podcast was, you know, tens of millions. The book uh, as well. So now they've definitely got, you know, one or 200 million dollars right. between them which right. should last them a few weeks probably with their <laughs> their lifestyle I mean, and, that, yeah. and that's again that's the issue it's it's fine to go and sell stories and things to an extent for money but we just don't want to hear the victim story with it i don't want to hear that the press are evil when they're just doing the same thing when the money is we're not talking about millions then we're talking about you know what do they get a few hundred maybe a thousand dollars for a, a, one of these stories so that's the that's the complication around it. And I think Prince Harry's the same thing with the gratitude, uh, reading his book. It wasn't all bad. And, and it's the same thing as what you say about Meghan, that his life, it, it wasn't that great. 
Um, I don't think it was that great. I certainly don't envy his his early uh, life and his upbringing with what happened to his mum. Okay, he, it, it might be overused or whatever, but it's not, not a nice thing to happen to him. Uh, the lack of love and the coldness in that family. And also, like I think a huge part of life is growing up and being able to sort of try and move upwards in some sense and have a, a, a vague feeling of Im- improving and achieving. But if you're born not just the t- you know on top of the top, there's nowhere to go. It's still better than being poor and struggling to put food on the table. But I'd say that most middle or lower middle class people probably have it better in many respects in terms of just happiness in your life. But you read that book and there's just not there's not one iota of like, to be fair, I had it a bit, you know, right. easier in some ways than right. there's nothing. He just envies like the common person with no idea about the struggles that most of us have to make. I right. got, um, you mentioned peanut butter and jelly. I got punched for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich once. What does that mean? Somebody, um, oh, somebody wanted yours because you had a nice upbringing with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> it was, I think actually you've, you've, you've got the crux of it. Because where <laughs> I was studying at um, Leeds University, there, there is a bit of conflict between sort of the locals mm-hmm. and a lot of the students who often come from London are sort of right. uh, maybe more middle class. Uh, and so I was just walking and I'd made this nice peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which we call peanut butter and jam, of course. And uh, I haven't had that for years, actually, because I'm eating a bit healthier. But, <laughs> but I was just walking and this guy was like, oh, you got a sani, mate? And I was like, oh, <laughs> God. Uh, yes, hello. Um, you, yes, it's mine, though. <laughs> and he said like, oh, g- give, us your sa- give us your sani. And I went, oh. <laughs> Uh, and eventually I gave him half and he, he threw it on the floor and he said, I don't want your sarnie. And then he punched me in the face. Oh my God. What? Yeah. That was 18 year old me. Cra- <laughs> That's crazy. And now Prince he'd be Harry. like, yeah, now he, he would be like, give me your crypto. I need you to give me all your crypto. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Crypto is the peanut butter and jelly of the, of the future. I exactly. Suppose. Should we should we get on to um we've got ten minutes now and we were gonna mm-hmm. talk about this other prince and princess sure. story, which yeah. I think um fits quite well, doesn't it? Tell me about the princesses. And I should say this is you know, you you're covering this stuff on infamous, your amazing podcast, so people should yeah. go check that out. Mm-hmm. Um but tell me about the princesses who escaped from Dubai. Yes, I gather that's I will. Princess and Latina. Maybe, and, as we're yeah, talking, go I'm like, I gotta get my friend who spent that day with Meghan Markle to come on my podcast. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yes. Come on. Yeah. Enough time has passed. You need to do it. That you know, she went like yeah. back in a while ago. Um, so yes, uh, I have this podcast, Infamous, and we're telling the stories of the three women in the royal family of Dubai who um have had some serious run-ins with the Sheikh there. So it's basically Princess Latifa, Prince. Princess Shamsa and uh, Princess Haya, who was just involved in, I mean, if not the biggest, one of the biggest uh, divorces in British history, right? Like she had, you know, Prince Charles's attorney was her attorney. I mean, it's just, it, it is bananas how much money Dubai has. But, you know, contrary to their reputation as a place of like openness and progress, there seems to be something strange going on with some of the women in the Sheikh's family. Right. 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 Yeah, yeah. Why would why do princesses have to escape? Right. 
Well, somebody said to me, I was talking to a guy, a Saudi Arabian guy, and he said, you know, it's so interesting in Saudi Arabia, actually, the society in the way, like, even though we don't think about this in the West, is quite open. But the government, like the people at the top are totally shut down. Like that is a black box that is totally, you know, that's the their 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 own, you know, realm and you don't know what's going on in there. And in Dubai, it's quite a, a different situation where the government is quite open, right? Open to trade, open to whatever might happen. 80, you know, big number of the um, of the people there are expats, right? Trying to make money. But the like society of the Emiratis, right, which are a very small portion of the country and particularly the very, very wealthy Emiratis is completely closed. You don't know like what exactly is going on with them. So this is like a fascinating story where this all just like, you know, sort of like sprung forth into view and it's just very unique. Like basically what happened is um, one of the daughters of the sheikh, Princess Latifah, decided she wanted to leave Dubai. She felt she had been punished very, very harshly by, you know, she attributed it to her father. And she hooks up with, like, a guy who used to be a French spy. Um, and the two of them decide to create this whole escape route. And she suddenly is with her capoeira instructor, who's basically there to help her, you know, protect her, in Oman, on jet skis, going out to a yacht, running away from Dubai, gets on this boat with the French spy, a small crew, the capoeira instructor, Finnish capoeira female instructor, and they start going on the boat. They're trying to get to the, the U.S. They decide to divert to go over to India. And oh, my God, what's happening? The Indians are on the boat. So the Washington Post reported that Sheikh Mohammed of Dubai, the leader of Dubai, called Modi, the leader of India at that time, and said, my daughter's been kidnapped. Go get her. So they boarded the boat. And then these Emiratis showed up, helicopters, the whole thing, huge other ships moved in. And they told the Finnish capoeira instructor, if you want to you know, it would be better for you if you just jumped off the boat right here, right now. Like, just jumped save yourself. Boat. Just save yourself because you're going to you're gone anyway. Right. And Princess Latifah was supposedly just saying, like, I want political asylum. Like, I am looking for political asylum. And, you know, the Indians let the Emiratis take her away. The boat went back to Dubai with the capoeira instructor and the others, and they put them in like a prison in the desert. But Latifa had made a video of – if you haven't seen this video, it is really worth watching. Like a huge video before she got on the boat saying – what had happened to her in her life and why she wanted to leave Dubai. And they released the video. And so it became a big story. I mean, you must have heard about it in Britain. You know, there's been a lot of coverage and like BBC coverage and documentaries and all of that. Um, well, well, the thing is, people don't like go to the BBC News uh, channel that much because it's a bit not very good. Oh, OK. Um, OK. <laughs> that's why everybody goes to the Daily Mail, unfortunately, and all the tabloids. Because right. the BBC one is just like, 
oh, what's what's the weather today? Because they're just so scared of like touching anything. So people right. don't go to it. So I think um, relatively few British people actually know this story. Oh, my God, that's really interesting. Because I assumed, you know, because Sheikh Mohammed is such a big landowner and he has like the biggest horse racing team in the world or, you know, Godolphin. And he's really like, you know, he's at Ascot with the Queen. And I just assumed he was sort of a... A figure there. But he, uh, yeah, th this essentially spins into a story where his wife also ends up escaping from Dubai, gets on a plane, takes off, goes to Germany. We don't know exactly what happened, but for some reason, Germany didn't let her in. She didn't want to go to Britain because, you know, she was, one would assume, worried about his connections there. Um, but she ended up going to Britain, um, getting, uh, you know, diplomatic immunity from Jordan, which is where she's from. And she's sort of like the Princess Di of Jordan, right? She's beautiful, educated, very anglicized. Um, and then the two of them had this enormous custody battle and divorce in the British courts a couple of years ago, which ended up in her favor, um, in which, you know, a lot of stuff came out about the way that this family was run and possible hacking with Pegasus of phones and just like surveillance that's going on. Um, you know, it's a it's it's really sad. But in the Arab world, we don't think, you know, we think of the underclass of women as the really the ones who are persecuted. But actually, like none of them have any rights. And it doesn't matter what level your family is at. There's still going to be Families where, like, as, as people said to me, like, the weird sister is just sort of under the stare, you know, and because you are not a person, like, your personhood is in your father or your brother or whoever the male guardian is, you really don't have any recourse, you know? Man, it's so sad. That reminds me a tiny bit of Scientology as well, because I think there was, I always had this assumption that the people right at the top are doing really great. And then I read uh, Mike Rinder's book because he left Scientology and he was just like, yeah, brutalized. Like well, he was right near the top. And I guess he was then doing it to other people. But David Miscavige would just come up to him one, just for no reason, just punch him in the face. He didn't even have oh a peanut God. butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that's going to be irrelevant yeah. to people who have just watched, if, they, if I put this out as a clip. <laughs> just, but, but, so is that story, do you go into, is the episode yet or the episode's out? So that episode that? is coming out on March 30th. It's four episodes Ooh. that are dropping on March 30th. So, well, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, that's great. And this, this will probably come out just before that. Oh, so that's going to be good. So yeah. people go and check that out. Infamous, the the best podcast that isn't this podcast <laughs> in the world. <laughs> you got it. And uh, Vanessa, thank you for being on The Edge. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. Thank you, Vanessa Gregoriadis, for coming on the show again. Uh, that was brilliant. Go check out the former episode that I did with her about Nixium and how she got in close with Keith Ranieri, the leader thereof, um, and had a weird experience with him and Alison Mack, the actress from Smallville, who was part of that Nixium cult where they brandished people with... Uh, with with brandings, I should say, of their initials. So check that one out. Go check out uh, Vanessa's infamous podcast where you'll learn all about the, the princesses and things, the stuff we talked about at the end, um, and all the other cult stuff. It's really, really good. I'll see you all soon. When you visit Arizona... 
time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.